He said, uh, imagine that a young son is borrowing his father's uh, cherished old restored Mustang. You know, you can imagine one of those cool 60s age, 60s era Mustangs. And the son, newly licensed, borrows his dad's treasured classic car and takes it out for a spin for the weekend and puts a big old dent in it. And then imagine what that would be like if the son uh, saw his dad on Monday and said, hey, dad, and just wanted to kind of pick up where he left off on Friday with just chit-chat, just kind of going about life. You would imagine the dad that owned that classic car would be, don't we have to, to talk about something? Didn't something happen this weekend that we need to deal with? And then we'll go back to life together as father and son? It's a great illustration of what confession of sin does and where it fits into life with our God. I want to encourage you, if you would, in these next few moments to just sit quietly and to think on someone that you may be withholding forgiveness from. Think on someone you may have wronged. Think on someone you may have hurt. Think on a God that you may have wronged. And just spend a few minutes confessing sin, and then we'll continue on with our time of worship. That may not be adequate time for, for some of us, um, but hopefully that's a start. Maybe something that we can um, enjoy on a weekly basis. I think it's a fitting place to start as a people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer in regards to that confessed sin. Lord, we are thankful that we find ample forgiveness. We are thankful that through this unbelievable, um, shocking, surprising, wonderful work of the cross that our Savior and Lord has paid the price for the sin that we just brought before you. Lord, we are thankful that we can uh, come to you boldly, that we can enter your throne room without appointment because of that grand work. And this morning, Lord, we enter boldly. We look for uh, a sweet time with you and thankful that we are wearing a, a wonderful righteousness that belongs to Christ. We confess that this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Man, welcome. It's been a long, long month. Some of you that are visiting with us this morning, uh, you may, uh, you may, uh, it might be complete news to you. Some of you that have been here for a while, you know, the last month and a few weeks, I've been out. I've been um, fighting uh, COVID. I had, uh, in the last month, I had stews, multiple stews. I probably shouldn't share this before lunch, but I'm going to share it anyway because it's something I want to say thank you for. Multiple stews, multiple soups. Some of them were made with bone broth. Like you're really going to be fighting uh, with, with really powerful weapons when you're drinking something made with bone broth. Chili, a really good chili. A taco casserole. Uh, pork chops. We had roasts, multiple roasts. I mean, I'm putting an S at the end of that. Uh, chicken pot pie made by none other than the great Trevor Daniel. Now, how about that? It may have been the best pot pie I've ever had. Uh, chicken and dumplings that were just amazing. Sausages, like a, a whole meal of just a bunch of big sausages right off the grill. I mean, it doesn't matter how you're feeling. That's going to make you feel a little better. Fajitas made with homemade salsa, both made by somebody that really knows what they're doing. Uh, barbecue, I think it was Soul Man's. Ernie's, sorry, I need to give credit where credit's due. I had a, a, a survival kit from the Sunshine Shop. All kinds of stuff in there. Even a cough drop that actually worked. I mean, I'm not talking Ludens. I'm talking like a serious cough drop that actually worked in that survival kit. A nebulizer that truly saved my life. I mean, gracious thanks, gracious thanks a lot. That nebulizer was, was a winner. A humidifier. We had all kinds of apparatus going in our house. The, the uh, electricity bill is going to be outrageous. 
uh, handmade coloring books, like a three special little handmade coloring books by three little artists. It was so sweet. I haven't colored them yet. I promised them that I would color them this week, and one of them said, nah, you don't have to do that. So it's even sweet on top of that. The artists were even sweet enough to say you didn't have to do that, though I should have. But most of all, what I appreciated this last month or so was prayer. This was gruesome. It was gruesome. And I am so grateful for people that uh, really blessed us in a time where we really needed it. Let's go to the Lord. Speaking of uh, someone that uh, went through a really dark night with COVID, I want to pray for Chet Haney in the next few minutes. Chet Haney's a pastor of Highland Terrace Baptist Church. He's still on oxygen, uh, carries around an oxygen tank with him. Uh, I want to pray for Chet. I want to pray for uh, Highland Terrace Baptist Church, who is still rebuilding from that crazy wind, like uh, wind thing, Zephyr, whatever you would want to call it, the craziest wind gust in the history of Greenville that just blew their roof off. So they are literally rebuilding. I want to pray for the Malay people of Malaysia. Uh, 1.3, excuse me, 13 million, not 1.3, 13 million people strong. In order to be Malaysian, you have to be Muslim. So think about that. If they are to renounce their Muslim faith and trust Christ as a Christian, they have to renounce being Malaysian. Man, let's bathe that in prayer. Let's bathe Chet in prayer. Let's bathe Highland Terrace Baptist Church in prayer. And let's go to the Lord. Lord, we are thankful for these few minutes that we have, and we want to bring a few specific requests before you. We want to pray for, we want to pray for our brother, Chet Haney. I want to pray for him as a pastor, as a husband, and a father. And um, um, Lord, I just, we, we want to just ask you to give him the strength that he needs to shepherd, uh, first of all, uh, his family, and additionally, uh, the people of God at Highland Terrace, Lord. I uh, we are thankful that he's still with us. We're thankful that he has uh, the medical means to continue to uh, take in the oxygen that he needs. Lord, we ask you just to give him um, just what he needs, uh, just enough manna to get through the day, where he's continuing to be dependent on you, but where he's useful for kingdom service. We are asking you to bless him. We're asking you to bless also Highland Terrace Baptist Church, uh, a church that's literally rebuilding. Lord, we are thankful that... Uh, the Zephyr was no surprise to you, um, that it was either ordained or allowed, whatever the case, that you weren't caught off guard, and that you uh, sustain and walk with your people at Holland Terrace Baptist Church. We are entrusting that church family to you. We're praying also for the people of Malaysia, the Malay people. Lord, what a, a, a tremendous hurdle to renounce the, even their, their nationality and their cultural identity in order to follow Christ, Lord. We pray that those that you are drawing, uh, the 126 people that, you, uh, that, that we believe are needed on the field, that you will call to the work, Lord, we pray that they will bring the good news of a kingdom that's finer than Malaysia, of a king that's greater than any earthly king, the great and wonderful high king of heaven, Lord. We pray that you would draw people to you that whatever the cost, whatever it meant in terms of their identity as a family, as a culture, as a nation, that they would um, put their hand to the plow, that they would cast their lot with you and follow you wholeheartedly, and that that would happen uh, in great number, that you would draw this people group to you. Lord, we are thankful that we can bring a tremendous prayer, a, 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 a huge uh, request before a huge God. Lord, we pray that you would continue to guide our time in these next few minutes. I'm praying these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand, if you would, for the reading of God's Word this morning from Genesis chapter 32. And Jacob was left alone, verse 24, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Let's pray. Lord, speak to us from this wonderful passage about a man wrestling with his God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. 
Genesis chapter 32, verse 24, sort of home base for us this morning. There's a lot of story around this, and we're going to get to that story in these next few minutes. Uh, if you want to kind of get a, a sense of what the big picture is for this Genesis passage, this story of Jacob, you could kind of consider it like this. This is a story of Jacob's dark night of the soul. Jacob's dark night. Let's get to know this man named Jacob, this wrestler, if we want to follow this passage in verse 24, this man who wrestled with God. His grandfather, you can meet in chapter 12 of Genesis, his name was Abraham. You might be familiar with Abram, later renamed Abraham. His father, you can meet in chapter 21, his name was Isaac. And Isaac uh, was father to twins, Jacob and his brother Esau. If you want to look over a few pages with me, I'll tell, tell a little bit of this story leading up to this, this passage where we're going to be focusing this morning. You can look at chapter 25. Beginning in verse 24, it's a little bit about the birth of these twin boys. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when he bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a manly man, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. These four people that I've just mentioned, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and to some degree Esau, are sort of the main characters in the birth of a people. But the guy that we're going to be spending most of our time on this morning, pretty much all of our time, is this man named Jacob. I want to acquaint you with the character of this man leading up to this dark night over there in chapter 35. I want you to get to know him before this dark night a little bit. There's a passage to consider right here in these next few verses beginning in verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, remember he's sort of a homeboy sticking around the house. I've sort of envisioned him wearing his, his own apron. You know, Esau would not have had an apron, but Jacob on the other hand had an apron, probably had a little J on it. Probably italicized, kind of like Laverne for the older among us, you know, Laverne and Shirley, you know, nice little apron. He's at home cooking stew. Meanwhile, Esau's out doing manly things. Esau came in from the field and he's exhausted. Man, he's been out doing manly stuff. And he comes in and Esau says to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright right now. Man, that's duress, don't you think? I mean, the guys come in from a hard day or maybe days out in the field and there's Jacob sticking around the house, got his cursive J on his apron and he entices his brother to sell him his birthright for a bowl of soup. And Esau said, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Just getting to know Jacob right off the bat, I'm going to say he's probably not a very good brother. He just doesn't look at it like it to me. I mean, I'm okay with a guy being more kind of stay-at-home kind of guy with the apron thing. That's totally cool. You know, I, cooking's cool. I like cooking. In fact, I even have my own apron, so I'm not picking on anybody that has aprons. It doesn't have a, a cursive B on it, but I do have my own, own apron. I'm not against that, but the way he handled that with his brother is really pretty uncool. He finagled his brother out of the birthright, and um, that's, that's not a great start. A couple chapters later, in chapter 27, I'll just kind of summarize how this went. You might be familiar with the story. He proves to not be a very good son either. His mom actually encourages him to fool his father out of the blessing. He puts on what sounds to be the most ridiculous costume in the history of man, but it actually works. He puts lambskin on his arms, and Esau must have been crazy hairy. He puts lambskin on the back of his neck, and he actually fools his father, Isaac, into giving him 
the blessing. He's proven so far to be not such a great brother. And I'm just going to add to that, he doesn't sound like much of a son. Fast forward a few chapters, a few uh, years in the story. Actually, it's not long after that. His father Isaac sent him away to his uh, uncle Laban to begin to work for his uncle Laban and try and find a wife. And you might be familiar with that story. He spends 20 years there. Seven years, and I'll explain how that unfolded. Seven years, seven years, and then another six years. And he actually, during that period, proves to be quite a worker. He builds a tremendous flock of sheep. Okay, But fast forward then to kind of get into the story of what unfolded there. After his first seven years, he got his first wife. Her name was Leah. The father Laban did a little switcheroo. He was aiming for Rachel. That's who he loved. He ended up with Leah. He spends another seven years working, actually gets the, the woman that he loved, Rachel. And in both of those wives, he ended up with two of their hand servants, their maid servants, Bilhah and Zilpah. So he's got two wives and then their two servants. And then I'm going to argue at that point he proves to not be so much of a father and husband either because he looks to be a passenger in the family planning. As he, with these two wives and their two servants, he fathers 12 sons. It just sounds ridiculous. He sounds like a passenger in their family plan. So, so far getting to know this guy, he doesn't look like so much of a brother. He doesn't look like a great son. He doesn't look like a great husband. And in chapter 31, we'll add something else to his story. We're getting really close to 35, so we're going to get a sense of what happens here in chapter 31. You can just look at the heading without reading. Jacob flees from Laban. This uncle that he worked for for 20 years, instead of saying, hey, I've worked for you for 20 years, I'm leaving, he actually fled incognito, trying to flee. I, don't, I can't remember if it was under the cover of darkness, but he flees without Laban's uh, blessing. He proves to be a little scaredy cat on top of all the other things we've added so far. Add to the next chapter, just uh, right across the page there, that is uh, chapter 32, he is going to meet his brother Esau. And you can look at the heading right there. He fears his brother Esau. So he's scared of Laban. And now we add to that. He's scared of Esau. And what he does when he's anticipating meeting Esau is he breaks up his entire family, all these wives, with two wives and two servants, and all these children, and he sends them out in front of him in hopes that maybe them being in front of him will calm any sort of anxiety that Esau is facing as he's going to meet his brother. He's scared of his brother. He puts his family in front of him. What kind of father does that sound like? What kind of husband does that sound like? He's not so much of a son. He's not so much of a brother. He's not so much of a husband. And he's apparently not very brave. But then comes a night alone in chapter 32. I said 35 earlier, chapter 32. The same night, beginning in verse 22, here's where we're going to really spend our time this morning. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children. He hadn't had his 12th yet at that point. And he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream. Okay, that's key. He sent them across the river in front of them and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone by the Jabbok that night. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, 
and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This guy that we've already met so far, that has proven so far to not be such a great brother, not such a great son, not such a great husband, a scaredy cat, scared of his uncle Laban, and scared of his brother Esau, spends the night wrestling with God, we find out later in this story, by the J-Book. A night that John of the Cross, this ancient guy years ago, called the Dark Night of the Soul. Man, let that sit on you for a minute. The Dark Night of the Soul. As we read the story early on, the verse that I read beginning our morning, we didn't know who's wrestling with Jacob. But as we read the story, as, the, as it unfolds, we realize that Jacob recognizes who he's wrestling with. By the end of it, he says, I have experienced God and somehow survived. We realize over the course of the story that Jacob wrestled with God all night long till daybreak. I'm imagining what this must have been like. I'm imagining kind of a WWF experience. These are acronyms for wrestling federations. Some of y'all that aren't into that. Uh, MMA, maybe it was like an MMA match. I don't, mixed martial arts. It took me a minute. Mixed, mixed martial arts event. Or maybe it was like one of those kung fu movies where the guy's mouth doesn't match the words. Right? I'm imagining obviously being facetious here about what that night must have been like. It's really something to kind of enjoy considering what must that have been like? Now, we don't know the details. He doesn't give us the details. We know it's all night long. We have some of the details of what unfolded, and that's the only place we can go is to the details we have. He wrestled all night long, and something happened to Jacob in this dark night. Something happened to this man. He wrestled with him all night long, and it left this mama's boy this homeboy with the cursive J on his, his uh, apron, this cheat and this scaredy cat who clung to his God, it left him different. This passage says that he actually prevailed. Now, uh, God didn't leave with a limp, so we really know who prevailed there. But somehow in this story, in what unfolded, he prevailed. He hung on until he was blessed by his God. I did a little research on um, this limp uh, or on this hip injury, uh, and I, I, I want to develop that here in a moment, but I, I want you to consider this, that God really developed this and hold on to this, that God did something to this man in this night where he gave him a limp. God did something profound to this man where he gave him something far more than this significant Limp. He blessed him. He renamed him. You might even consider he recreated him in this night. Oftentimes a new name goes with a whole new trajectory and a whole new identity. And he just touched his hip and left his hip out of joint in what I believe was a lifelong limp. I did a little research on hip injuries and on specifically when your hip is dislocated, uh, you have what's called the femur, which is this big long, it's actually the longest bone in your body. It's your thigh bone. At the top of the femur, you have this, this big protrusion that fits in something called an acetabulum in your pelvis. And it is really hard to dislocate a hip, but it happens often in a car, in, uh, a car accident. Okay, and usually it's dislocated uh, posterior, meaning backwards, behind the hip joint. Because sometimes it's anterior through one strange event or another. But whatever the case, when it happens, it is a profound injury. There's all kinds of vessels that surround the hip joint there. There's something called the sciatic nerve, the longest nerve in the body. And anybody that deals with sciatica knows, do not mess with the sciatic nerve. You're talking about something that is excruciating. And this man, I believe, left with a lifelong limp. It doesn't say at any point that his body was healed to the point where the limp went away. And in fact, the people of God from that point on did not eat the sinew of the hip joint in remembrance 
of what happened to Jacob. I can't imagine that years-long practice would fit with just a few days and a little hitch in your get-along. I think our man Jacob, now renamed Israel, left with a lifelong limp. I thought it interesting in Hebrews where the, uh, the heroes of the saints are mentioned. This is what it says about Jacob. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each one of his sons, or blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. He's the only one mentioned at any point that's leaning on his staff as, as he's going about life. I think this guy spent the rest of his life limping around while he trusted his God. Keep that lifelong limp in mind as we go forward. From this point on, this man now newly named Israel is profoundly changed. He survived the dark night, wrestling with God, clinging to God, and from that point forward, limping through life. Let's look at what happens right here at the beginning of chapter 33 and see how this guy might be different after this dark night. Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. Remember, this guy who's previously not a very good brother, not a very good son, not a very good husband and father. Well, we don't know about his fatherhood, but at least his husbandhood. Okay, a guy who's scared of Laban and definitely scared of his brother Esau. It says, Esau's coming forward with 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, and then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. But listen to what it says next. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Something right off the bat that sounds a little different is he doesn't sound quite as scared. Maybe a night wrestling with his God left him to where he's not scared of his brother after all. He meets Esau in front of his clan rather than hiding behind it. He limps to the front to face his brother and face his fears head on, trusting his new God. Here's something I want to show you that might be the most profound development of this night of wrestling. Since we're here in Genesis, just look a few pages over in chapter 28, verse 21. I want to show you that in this dark night that something happened with Jacob in his relationship with his God. Chapter 28, verse 20 and 21, watch what's developed here. Jacob makes a vow. This is after he has a, a, a dream, you know, that Jacob's latter night that he spent uh, dreaming all night, sleeping on a stone. He made a vow saying, if God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my Father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. How about that? Let's make some conditions with God on whether you're going to be my God or not. God, if things go my way, and the things that I want to do in the future actually unfold that way, then you will be my God. Man, that doesn't sound like he's quite his God, does it? Sounds a little conditional. Look a couple chapters later in chapter 32, verse 9. Man, this is profound. In chapter 32, verse 9, it says, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country, to your kindred, that I may do you good. Notice how he refers to this God, the God of my granddaddy, and the God of my daddy, but not yet my God. Notice where that chapter fits in the story. He hasn't wrestled with God yet. He hasn't endured the dark night. He hasn't clung to God all night, wrestling and prevailing. And appears at this point, God's not quite his God just yet. But what is so beautiful at the end of this chapter where he finally faces his brother head on after this dark night, after he's changed through this wrestling match with God. Verse 20 of chapter 33 says, After he's met his brother Esau, it says, There he erected an altar and he called it El Eloi Israel, meaning the God of Israel. 
the God of Jacob. He hasn't been my God after I've done, as I've gone through all these things of talking my brother out of the birthright, fooling my father out of the blessing, working for Laban all these years, fathering a family with virtually four wives and 12 or 11 sons by this point. He hasn't quite been my father. He hasn't quite met my conditions yet. He's not quite my God. He's the God of my granddaddy and my father. But after wrestling with him all night long and leaving with a limp, now he's the God of Israel. Man, that's beautiful. Just let that sit on you a moment. Isn't that beautiful? He's become the God of this limping man, Israel. This man is so profoundly different after this dark night of the soul. God blesses him again later in chapter 35. In chapter 35, verse 10, it says, God said to him, your name is Jacob. He's reiterating this blessing. It says, no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. Does that sound familiar? He's given him like a whole new cultural mandate. Just almost like he gave Noah and like he gave Adam before that. He's given it now to Jacob, this restart, this recreation. I'm going to build a whole new creation through you. Israel, this new man after this dark night. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, you little heel grabber, you little cheat, you little foolish thing. I'm going to use you to confound the wise. I'm going to use you as part of my plan and kings, in fact, shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I'll give to you. And the land of your offspring after you. Man, just think about this. This guy is altogether new. And God is blessing him after this dark night of wrestling. He blesses him again, reinforcing the newness of this identity. He gives him a new cultural mandate. And God blessed this man, Israel, with a promise of offspring and geography. Man, it's wonderful. He even promises him that kings shall come through you. And Israel then limps through the rest of the story of Genesis, doesn't he? See him limping around, raising his family as he's dependent now on his God. He's limping through the loss of his son Joseph or the perceived loss. He limps through trusting God as he endures and survives famine. As he rediscovers his lost son. And lastly, as he leads his family, limping out in front to Egypt to survive a famine and to be the birth of a nation. God did something with this man on this dark, terrible night on the other side of the Jabbok that left him changed, leaving him useful. I would argue leaving him useful, leaving him dependent on his God. This dark night left him renamed, recreated, and limping. People of God at Crosspoint, as we embark on what is guaranteed to be another challenging year, I want to put in front of you this morning... I want you to see God's wonderful purpose in wrestling with his people in the dark night. And I want you even to, to maybe embrace the notion of a good old God-dependent limp. A good old-fashioned God-dependent limp. It is a theme. You may have missed it. It's, uh, it's pretty obscure in our, in our um prophets, uh, this last uh, Advent series that we went through, you might have missed it. Morris was preaching one Sunday in Micah, and man, it was a beautiful window into something that's developed in the book of Micah. In chapter 4, it says about this people, this people of God, it says, in that day declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. In the Hebrew, it means the limping. I will assemble the limping and gather those who've been driven away and those whom I've afflicted. 
And the lame I will make the remnant. You know the story in Micah, the remnants are the ones that God is drawing through the dark night of the Assyrian invasion. The remnant is who you want to be part of. And the remnant here is described as a limping and lame people. And it actually says that God did that to them. It says God afflicted them, like you're imagining, touching his hip joint and leaving that hip out of joint. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Zephaniah develops the same picture. I will save the lame and the limping and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. What's developed here in these minor prophets and this little obscure teaching is the notion that this remnant... This little people of God within the people of God. The people of God that are being drawn through that dark night are a limping and lame people. A limping and lame and dependent people. Man, I don't know if that's beautiful to you. I hope it will be if in the moment, if it's not just quite yet. But that makes so much sense of so much. It makes so much sense of why our Savior was drawn to the lame, to the blind, to the deaf, to the leprous, to the marginalized, to the forgotten, to the fringes. It makes so much sense of the affection of our Lord in the Gospels and who He reaches out to who he pursues. It reframes so much of the New Testament, so much of these stories. They have a whole new meaning. Peter's dark night of betrayal. I don't know him. Maiden, you scare me to death. I don't know this Jesus. I don't know this Jesus. This dark night of betrayal is precisely what this proud, headstrong man needed to be useful And it left him limping, metaphorically, humbled and God-dependent and useful for church planting all over the Roman Empire from that point on. It reframes so many of these stories. It considers Saul's Damascus Road experience that left him blind. Not lame, limping, but blind. But now seeing, renamed and recreated. Peter, by the way, got a new name and was recreated as well. What a beautiful restoration he received where Jesus said to him, feed now, now that you've gone through the dark night on the other side of the Jabbok, denying me, feed my lambs. Feed my sheep, Peter. Saul renamed Paul through this Damascus Road wrestling match. Paul then continued thorn in the flesh that left him limping all over the Roman Empire as he planted churches in every clime and place. Man, that thorn was a continual wrestling match for him that left him dependent and humbled and useful. Paul so beautifully developed this idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. He says, he's writing to the Corinthian church, just listen to this, maybe jot this passage down and consider this, because it's beautiful. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Read the book of Acts. It'll leave you devastated. Climb into Paul's skin, imagining what it was like to be a church planter in Asia. As you read through the book of Acts. Read chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas, they're they're about to worship Paul and Barnabas. Because they're healing people. They're about to worship them. And they're saying, no, don't worship us. We're made of the same stuff you are. And a few moments later, they go from wanting to worship him to stoning him. Man, life was hard in ministry in Asia. In the ancient Roman Empire. And Paul is alluding to this as he's writing to the Corinthians. He said, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Where one minute we're worshipped and the next minute we're stoned. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We wrestled all night long. Church planting in Asia. 
Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And God wrestled with us through church planting in the Roman Empire to leave us dependent and limping and humble and responsive and attentive and useful. Man, you read this story in Acts and you'll see many dark nights in ministry. If you put your hand in ministry now in 2020 and 2021, you will experience many dark nights in ministry. I'm speaking to people in this room right now who are about the work of pouring into others and will spend and probably have spent many dark nights in ministry. This will reframe all of that and give some meaning to all of that as you realize he's making you useful through those dark nights. He's leaving you limping, but he's making you useful and dependent in and through those dark nights. God wrestles with his people, man. That's the message of this morning. God wrestles with his people, but he leaves them blessed. He leaves them blessed and limping through it. I'm thankful for a God that works that way. This is a mercy to proud, headstrong people. Any others in this room that need to wrestle with God? Anybody else in this room that really left to your own device is pretty proud and headstrong and think you got it figured out? Anybody else in this room that needs a night night on the other side of the J-Buck to put things in perspective? Man, I'm thankful for a God that does that. He gives us these dark nights to teach us to rely on Him and not on ourselves. We've had a dark night in the history of our church. If you've been around Crosspoint for any period of time, you know what, not necessarily this last year, that's a different story, but the two or three years before that were like, right? Folks that are just visiting or joining are like, oh, I'm not sure. It sounds, sounds interesting. I'll just tell you, it was a very difficult season in the life of our church. Christie's mother passed away during that season, uh, protracted, somewhat protracted illness. Christie's father was, became sick during that period and was battling cancer and heart stuff and we had all kinds of stuff going on. I had some health issues. I had a pulmonary embolism and then a cascade of health issues associated with that. So the two of us had physical and emotional and fam- family stuff going on in this window. And then on top of that, we had some really difficult stuff going on in church. Really difficult stuff going on sort of behind the, uh, the, the, the leadership environment within the leadership environment some very difficult stuff going on that i would call a dark night a very dark and difficult night for the two of us and for those of us those of you that were really involved in that season did any of us leave without a limp did anybody not leave Without a limp, I trust and believe that the Lord did that to proud, headstrong, self-reliant people like Ben McGraw so that I might be useful. (laughs) What a great God. What a great God. I'll take that limp and I'll take that God. Um, ben and Christy uh, are officially limping. I don't know that I've ever been so threadbare, but so content and so delighted with a God that does what he does. Christy and I, um, our elders have provided for us to spend two weeks in Colorado. Um, Sunday after this next Sunday after the sermon, Christy and I are flying up there for two weeks of counseling, work. Like work, not vacay, 
heavy duty all day long or most of the day long. A good, I don't know if it's most of the day, you probably spend the rest of the day recovering, but a good portion of the day, daily counseling and Crosspoint elders have approved that because we're threadbare and limping. At this point, 18 years of ministry is hard on a marriage. Man, it's hard. Christy was texting somebody the other day and said, I'm trying to remember who, who we were texting back and forth. I think they're in this room. It makes me laugh because she said this tenfold blessing in this. And I said, tenfold? I'm not sure. <laughs> but man, it takes a toll. It takes a toll on you. The dark night. And two, when you climb into everyone else's dark night on top of that, which, which you do in ministry. You weep with those who weep. And it takes a toll. And just on marital level, I've never enjoyed Christy more as a best friend and a wife than I do right now. <laughs> but yet we still need some help. Part of why I'm sharing that this morning is for prayer, that you'll pray for us those two weeks we're away, but also so that you know that if you need some help, it doesn't mean you're broken. Well, maybe it does mean you're broken. And maybe broken's okay. Maybe broken is the sweet spot of dependence on God. Amen? <laughs> maybe broken is just right. Where actually maybe we won't be headstrong and proud and think we got it all figured out. We'll be open and vulnerable and dependent and needy for the glory of God. So maritally, we need that. Ministry-wise, we need that. Ministry's hard, but so good, but so hard. <laughs> it's hard. Man, I, I went to seminary with, I think, a bunch of guys that thought that ministry was going to be just like torn jeans and, you know, playing games all day with a bunch of youth. Like spitting, shooting milk out of your nose with fun time, you know. Frankie's fun part, that's the kind of, but man, ministry's hard. I don't care what age you're working with. It's hard. And we need help sometimes. And part of what we're doing up there is to help us through this next, um, through, to find processing and health for this next season. We've gone through the dark night and we trust that God's going to use it to do something so that we'll be maybe more useful in this next season than we were in the last. That's the way he works. That's the way he moves. He did that with us as a church. He did that with us as a couple. I think he's doing that now. So I'm officially limping and I won't fake it. I'll celebrate it. God dependent and limping. I think there's a dark night of our church history. There's a dark night of just ministry and the toll that it takes on marriage. There's a dark night of COVID. There's a dark night of this last year with a global pandemic. I think there's been a corporate human limping that's come from this last year. Just in terms of church, it's taken a profound, it's been a profound wrestling match on the other side of the J. But there's a couple of months that I spent driving up to an empty parking lot and talking to my computer and thinking, what even is this? Are they out there? <laughs> I hope so. How are they? Man, that, that's strange. A couple of months of that on the front end of this whole thing. Masks? Adjusting to life with looking at masks? Such a large part of communication is nonverbal communication. And then there's the adjustment of speaking to a room, folks with masks. That, that's a challenge. Um, limited attendance? COVID has, has left us with limited attendance. Uh, oftentimes people will ask you, people that know that you're in ministry, they'll say, hey, how's your church? How, how, how's your church doing? And they're not talking about your church like you own it. They're talking about your church that you're part of, okay? And I'm like, oh, well, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure because it's like an um, iceberg where a lot of it's underwater right now, and I don't know how much is underwater because I can't see it. And that's everybody out there. And that's everybody that's not out there right now, but is just tired of watching church online and isn't doing anything right now, but still loves Jesus. 
I don't know that I'm more burdened for anyone in the world than that people group right now. The people that know the Lord, the people that trust the Lord, the people that are part of the local church, but they're not even bothering to do that because they're just tired. Man, COVID has been a dark night. Is anybody not limping from COVID? I will add, man, personally, <laughs> Christy and I, a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago now, we're, have, we're dealing with a very real possibility that I may not make it through this. You're going to have a real hard time convincing me that this COVID thing is much ado about nothing. Man, it's a BB gun for a lot of people. And then every now and again, it's like a rifle for somebody. That was a wrestling match, a dark night. Gracious sakes alive. But I'm limping. I think we're limping. We think it just, I mean, I've just been talking church stuff. Add in their educators, the challenge for educators, teachers. Some of you teachers. Gracious sakes alive. What a challenge you're facing right now. Students, what a challenge you're facing in and out of school. In and out of this or that. This is canceled this week and this is back on. Oh, I was around this person, so i got to stay home for the next 12 days. What an unbelievably challenging time. How about this? I mean, restaurants too, right? Restaurants. I don't know that we have any people that are working in restaurants in our church right now. We may, and I hope I haven't missed you. But I don't know, I'm pretty sure we don't have any restaurant owners. Talk about a dark night right now. But I tell you the people that I, right now I feel like are the heroes that I don't think are forgotten. But talk about a dark night. The medical people right now. I spent two middle of the nights during this whole thing with people at the ER. And watching people come and go, nurses and doctors and people checking me in and tending to me with a good attitude. And really caring about me in the middle of the night. When I'm patient number 800 that's had COVID. And I'm like, I'm about to die. And they're like, nah, you'll be all right. Go home. Here's some cough medicine. <laughs> I mean, I, I say that dismissively. Actually, people that are just enduring an un- unbelievably dark night. We have to trust that God's not wasting that. He's doing something with that. That he's teaching us to be dependent on the Lord and not on ourselves. Man, what an unbelievable people, our medical personnel. And then there's the dark night just of being an, uh, a, a a human being in a fallen world. Man, just being a human being in a fallen world. In some ways, we're all in some version of the dark night across the Jabbok wrestling with God over one thing or another. We've got folks in our body that are dealing with cancer, folks that are dealing with life-threatening genetic conditions, people that are dealing with life-altering diagnoses. We have people in our body that are dealing with marital struggles people that are dealing with financial strains in our body right now we got people that are being whipped right now by besetting sins that are wrestling on the other side of the jabot and this is a fallen world and in itself promises dark and difficult nights but god does not waste those nights three things that are so four things that are so brief it takes two seconds apiece Encouragement from Jacob slash Israel after the dark night. First of all, don't let go of God in this mess. Whatever mess it is, don't let go of God. Demand a blessing in the dark night and hold fast to him and you'll prevail. Secondly, see his work of recreating and renaming in those dark nights. He won't waste your struggles and sufferings. He's doing good things with those as you cling to him. Third, embrace the limp. If you feel like you're pretty lame and you got nothing to offer, now we're getting somewhere. I'm not very good at that. I wouldn't be a big help to that. I'm kind of lame. Perfect. Then when you actually put your hand to it and something great comes out of it, who gets the glory? God gets every bit of it. So get on it, limper. Man, I love that idea. Embrace the limp. Lastly, depend on him. Not on yourselves. Don't put expectations on other people that are unfair and unreasonable. And don't put them on yourselves. Depend on Him. Depend and rely on Him. These dark nights teach us that only God is deserving of our faith.
Let's pray. God, what a beautiful window into the goodness of a God that wrestles with his people. Lord, I am thankful that we are viewed um, in your eyes as a remnant that's being drawn through the dark night and that you are putting us in a place, each of us, and as families and corporately and as a a people that you are putting us in a place through this dark night of wrestling, in a place of usefulness, in a place of dependence. Lord, we're thankful that you're not wasting it. And Lord, we are holding fast to you and we are begging for a blessing. And we're thankful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to share a brief story with you for our supper. You can grab your supper and kind of have that at the ready. I won't give any instructions on that. By now, a year later, we ought to know how to do that. Listen to this cool little story as you get your, your supper ready. David is, has been king by, at some point, uh, uh, for some time at this point. He's experienced some of his victories. Okay, listen to what unfolds. David uh, said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? Typically, any time uh, a king was, um, was placed in a, uh, a new king, is placed in the position of rule, anybody that was a part of the previous uh, monarchy was either put to death or exiled. Okay, so it's sort of a, a reasonable question for David to ask this question. Is there anybody left of the house of Saul? You might imagine that the next sentence would be, because let's, let's identify them and put them to death or exile them because I don't want them to threaten my reign. Okay? Is he one left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? What a contrary image. Instead of killing him, I want to show kindness to him. What a beautiful picture. And Ziba said to the king, there's still a son of Jonathan, he's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. He's probably expecting to die at that moment. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table like family always. Isn't that cool? Let's see what happens. He paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? That ought to be the spirit of everybody in this room right now, frankly. Right? If that's not your spirit, you need a dark night on the other side of the J-Bone. And guess what? He who began a good work is going to be faithful to complete it, and it's going to happen. And when it happens, then you'll be able to identify with, excuse me, it's hard to say, Mephibosheth's statement there. What are you doing regarding a dead dog such as I? Man, can we feel that and feel that way as we come to this table with the king in the next few minutes? The king said to Ziba, Saul's servant, all that belonged to Saul and to his house I've given to your master's grandson, Mephibosheth. And you and your sons, your servants, shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Right? For us, that's a promise till the marriage supper of the Lamb and then into eternity. Right? We will always eat at the table of the king. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, according to all that, that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servants do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the table of the king. Now he was lame in both his feet, in case anybody forgot. (laughs) Right? Anybody else limping, want to eat with the king right now? In faith, let's take and eat. 
That's good. Let's take and drink in faith. Man, let's pray. God, you are so good to us. What in the world are you doing regarding dead dogs like us? We are so thankful that you have drawn us to your table. You've made it possible for us to eat at your table like one of your sons. And in fact, through Christ's work that you have adopted us as sons and daughters of the high king of heaven. What great news. Lord, we, limping forward, trust you and depend on you. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Y'all stand and let's sing.